What's up, you beautiful people? This is Gary Horn, and this, this is the NWA, a podcast celebrating the past, present, future, history, legacy, and tradition of one of the greatest pro wrestling entities of all time. I'm talking about the National Wrestling Alliance, and today I've got another episode, just a bonus for you guys, over at my other podcast, PsychotronicFilmSociety.com. We've been running a series based around WrestleMania, and we did another episode dealing with the 2000 film, Ready to Rumble, starring David Arquette. Now, obviously, I felt like that fit perfectly into what we do over here at This is the NWA, so I thought I'd add it as a bonus just to let you guys check it out and see if you're interested. Basically, we just review the movie, talk about the story behind it, that whole thing, and in this episode, obviously, there's not a lot about the making of the movie, so we deal a lot with WCW at the time, so I thought you guys might find that interesting. If that is the case and you do find it interesting it would be amazing if you go give psychotronic film society a follow and a subscribe it is over at psychotronic pod on all the social medias and you can find the youtube channel you can find everything in the bio just give it a follow if you don't mind but if not otherwise just enjoy the extra bonus episode that's all i just wanted to give a little something extra here just to keep you entertained in case you're looking for something to listen to or do whatever uh obviously with the david arquette connection that all makes sense other than that just wanted to mention once again our sponsor manscaped.com manscaped.com is the best in men's below the belt grooming it offers precision engineered tools for your family jewels guys don't want to miss out on this listen we're all quarantined right now maybe when you're listening to this that's your situation even if not you don't want things to get out of control down below the belt 70 percent of women say that they prefer a man who grooms downstairs that's why manscaped redesigned the electric trimmer that new lawnmower 3.0 is the greatest trimmer ever created it's a third generation has a cutting edge ceramic blade and it's advanced skin safe technology prevents manscaping accidents so you don't have to worry about nicks and cuts or any of that stuff it's all a thing of the past when i tell you this thing is premium i mean premium battery's gonna last up to 90 minutes so you can have a longer shave too take as long as you need nobody's gonna stop you nobody's gonna interrupt you if you're worried about it like family sleeping or something and you want to take care of business right then guess what it's this 7000 rpm motor but it has quiet stroke technology so it's as quiet as you could hope for and it comes with a really sweet charging stand and led light on the end of it so that you can highlight the areas you want to groom or just give your uh, weenie a spotlight just make sure you trim that junk of yours and that's why we've teamed up with them and you can get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code NWAPOD that's N-W-A-P-O-D over at manscaped.com I'm telling you your balls are going to thank you just go to manscaped.com enter the code NWAPOD and that's going to give you 20% off free shipping Don't say we never gave you anything. You're helping us out. They're helping us out. Their product's helping you out. So it's all a big circle of help. You see what I'm saying? So do it. Manscaped.com, NWA pod. All right. That out of the way. I hope you guys enjoy the bonus episode. Just check it out and let us know what you think. If you like it, give it a thumbs up on the YouTube or give it a subscribe over at Psychotronic Pod. We'd love for you guys to check that out. We do all kinds of movies, mostly weird horror, sci-fi, genre stuff. So it's a lot of fun. If if wrestling's not your only thing and you like movies, you may dig that show. Just thought there might be some crossover here. Okay, enough talking for me. I am at This Is Gary Horn. The show, of course, is at The NWA Pod, both on all the social medias. Thank you guys so 
so much for listening. Honestly, it, it, it blows my mind every day that I get to interact with you guys, and uh, we, we've got a, such a cool community. Okay, here we go. Here's Psychotronic Film Society, their episode on Ready to Rumble. your right nut is it really your left nut oh uh, what's that from i heard that in something recently it's uh from this movie that we're talking about today. oh in this movie yeah. <laughs> you're right it is in this movie i've forgotten so much about it already that's a good question though it's your lone nut it stopped me for a second during the movie i was like huh perhaps mm. these two stupid gentlemen have stumbled upon <laughs> One of the great mysteries of life. Uh, they're they're regular philosophers. Those two, G- Gordy and other guy. <laughs> I just I was waiting for you to tell me. I don't know his name. Because yeah, I don't. I don't the remember. law and <laughs> the other guy who's I can't remember either. Yeah, of it was like sugar something. Sugar daddy. Sugar daddy something. Su- sugar daddy Scott Con. <laughs> <laughs> Scott Con is Sean Dawkins. Sean Dawkins. Sean and Gordy. All right. Let's go ahead and start talking about this movie. I guess. <laughs> well, hello, and welcome to the Psychotronic Film Society, the podcast celebrating the legacy of cult and genre entertainment. I am one of your hosts, Gary Horn. Cult and genre entertainment. Not oh, I movies. did entertainment again. It just it like it flows so smoothly into entertainment. Movies, cinema. Colton genre cinema. I mean, we're. I mean, technically, the last week and this week, we are talking about some subjects that are not solely movies. So, yep, I guess true. entertainment works just like world wrestling entertainment because it encompasses so much more than just wrestling. It encompasses video games and television and movies, and it's it's everything you could ever want out of a company. In fact, porn. Have a, a porn. <laughs> not officially released, but they benefited from some porn. <laughs> We, Holy shit. You know That's it. so true. <laughs> <laughs> Those guys. Oh, that's Gary Horn. Did you say that? I said it. I oh, said I'm it. Justin Bishop. I did not say that. But uh, welcome to week two of this uh, short series we're doing on wrestling movies because it's uh, WrestleMania, which is going to be two nights now, I guess. Yeah. The 4th and 5th of April on TV in an empty arena, and it's going to be real, real dumb. It feels like it's going to be dumb. That's uh, as we're taping this next weekend. But uh, Yeah, I guess so. I guess by the time this episode's come out, you will have already seen it. It, it should release, I think, in between these two. We'll have little bookend episodes about yeah, wrestling. Movies. Your whole wrestling week while you're stuck at home, quarantined. I hope you're staying at home, and uh, because you don't want to catch the corona. At least at this point, Justin Bishop and I are still officially in studio together. But how long that will last, who knows? Mm, who knows? We'll see. We're sitting further apart than normal. Yeah. Usually, I'm in his lap. Yeah, it's weird. It's uncomfortable yeah. in, in so many ways. I'm heavier than him, so it's really <laughs> weird that he wouldn't be in my lap. But 
No, it's just the... I'm a bottom. (laughs) (laughs) I was about to make that same joke, so thank you for going there, Gary. We've been doing this for too long. (laughs) So last week, we discussed uh, WWE's, or I guess at the time, WWF's first foray into feature film producing. Uh, That was 1989's No Holds Barred, which was a movie that was not very well received by either critics or audiences or human beings in general. So this week we're kind of going to do the same thing. We're gonna we're gonna talk about another wrestling promotion's first foray into feature film producing. Uh, that's uh, in the year two thousand. The world the world championship. I forgot what WCW stood for for a second. World Championship Wrestling. Uh, they helped to produce a movie that, like No Holds Barred, was not well received by either critics or audiences. Uh, and that movie is our subject for today. Starring the great thespian, David Arquette. Today we're talking about Ready to Rumble. Buenos nachos. Corey, I didn't know you spoke Spanish. Are you fluent? No. I feel fine. Gordy and Sean had dead-end jobs. People always said I was a dreamer, an idiot, and a waste of life, and I will never amount to anything. No luck with the ladies. Brittany, let's go out again. We'll talk about me and you. Dude, you're in there. And no one to look up to. Freeze! Your sister shot her first perp today. That's nice, Gabby. But at least they had a hero. Jimmy King is the greatest wrestler of all time. Wrestling's fake. Wrestling's not fake! Jimmy King! Oh my god, a four-post massacre! No one can survive this! This isn't even a pay-per-view! Gary, you know this movie was released in the year 2000 because that one song by Lit plays not once, but twice. <laughs> well, and you already are... stole my main note from the, <laughs> the movie. <laughs> so I was like, wow, they are leaning into that by old worst enemy song. And uh, two different Kid, Kid Rock, Rock songs. songs. Yeah, I was I was down with the soundtrack as well. Justin. <laughs> Were you and, down with it? <laughs> <laughs> it may have gotten a spit or two on Spotify. <laughs> Is that what they call it? Like a spin? A spin? Or... You're not spinning anything. <laughs> but know. the... The sentiment stands. So I'm going to be up up front with you. Much like No Holds Barred, there is very little behind-the-scenes information on this movie, probably even less than there was on No Holds Barred, because that movie's at least had three decades for people to start talking about it. This one's had two decades as of, uh, like, like two weeks from now, I think, uh, or so, is its uh, 20th anniversary. I think the trouble is, is that both of these movies came out before the internet really took off, you know? Like I, I mean, mean, I don't know, 2000, like, the, it, I think the internet, I remember around that same time, fought, like, tracking the making of, like, Lord of the Rings from beginning to end. Not that I this is on the same level, but the it, the infrastructure of the internet was there, like, with even with early movie sites like Ain't It Cool News and Chud and things like that. Maybe that's what I was thinking, is maybe those sites weren't around as much. But you're right, I guess they, they technically were, because when was Blair Witch? That was, no, Blair Witch was 96. So they were like leaning into the internet then. Yeah. So, all right, never so mind. No, no excuses. excuses. <laughs> other than people just don't want to talk about this movie. Uh, so, for the second week in a row, the Psychotronic Film Society podcast is going to turn into a wrestling history show, which I'm sure Gary is fine with because this is sort of cross promotion for your other show. Yeah. Um, probably some people listening now will be from the other show because I plan on cross-promoting by dropping these episodes in that list. Yeah, so uh, sorry, I guess, to any of our listeners who aren't wrestling fans, but, I mean, I feel like wrestling is kind of psychotronic, too, you know? So I 
I feel like it fits. I mean, it's it's all that sort of type of entertainment that a lot of people see as lowbrow, but uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it is. I mean, this movie's. I'm not going to argue that it's not lowbrow. <laughs> I was about to say I don't think either movie helps the case. It does. They, they don't. They don't. <laughs> so. This week, our wrestling history lesson is going to be one that, that kind of puts the release of Ready to Rumble into some uh, historical context, I guess, uh, because we're to, this week, we're going to be talking about a subject known as the Monday Night Wars. People are going to be excited about this. You think so? <laughs> <laughs> we know. I mean, and this is going to be a very short overview of the Monday Night Wars, I should say. There are literally dozens of books and documentaries and television shows about this very subject. So this is going to be sort of like the Monday Night Wars for dummies. I don't know, man. I mean, we went through like Hulk Hogan's legacy, which kind of go- went into the building of WWF. So yeah. we might as well just go all in and just like, let's start in 1987. <laughs> <laughs> when Ted Turner bought Jim Crockett promotion. What year was that about when that was? When was that? Oh, I don't know. I'm I'm probably not the best person. I mean, um, you're, I mean, I should between be. The two <laughs> the people, between the two people in the room, you're the best person. Yeah, you're right. Uh, I, I feel like, because none of that's in my notes, but like basically... Ted Turner, who was already probably, I don't know if he was a billionaire yet, but he was very wealthy, and he had a a TV channel called The Superstation, which later turned into TBS, but he bought Jim Crockett Promotions, one of those uh, territorial uh, wrestling companies that we talked about last week. I feel like he was like at the beginning of the 90s or something like that, or so he started off slow. Yeah. He had like just a regular like Saturday show or something. And then he turned it, He when he bought it, he changed the name to World Championship Wrestling. It aired on the Superstation, and that was sort of like, it was still sort of a regional thing at the time, though. But yeah, he had of Atlanta. He eventually had the same idea as Vince McMahon and uh, wanted to do his own thing and not be a part of that whole NWA Right, right. I guess the origins of the Monday Night Wars kind of starts there because it kind of starts with a rivalry between, between Vince McMahon and Ted Turner, which sort of started in the early 80s when Vince McMahon, even before Ted Turner had launched uh, WCW, but Vince McMahon started hiring away talent from the the NWA. He started basically stepping on the toes of all of these NWA shows that were on on TV at the time, because Jim Crockett was part of the NWA, right? Right. Yeah, so yeah. that was one of the... Uh, Gary mentioned last week that the NWA was sort of an alliance of all these smaller territories, and Jim Crocker Promotions was one of those. So Vince McMahon, in his bid for world domination, basically starts poaching wrestlers from all of these smaller promotions and pissing people off. Yeah, he even bought up the television time for when Jim Crockett Promotions normally would air. Just so that they couldn't do it. Yeah, just so they what couldn't do it. Dick. <laughs> what a dick move. Yeah, just put <laughs> WWF stuff on. Yeah. So... All of this conflict at the time was all off screen. Uh, this was nothing that like fans didn't necessarily know about this at the time because back at back then, I guess wrestling was still trying. It still had the facade of like being quote unquote real, right? Right. But, but what Gary was talking about was Vince McMahon basically counter programming against his rival promotions' big events. So, and he would strong arm because he had the the deeper pockets to do it, he would strong arm cable companies into stopping his rivals advancements into the pay-per-view arena, which he had uh, kind of really hit hard on with his WrestleMania promotions. Yeah. That's actually, I mean, straight from the other thing uh, last week was, yeah, he, he got into pay-per-view and started doing Didn't want anyone that. else to do it. Yeah. So he would actually, yeah. Like tell these, 
pay-per-view distributors like don't put their stuff on if you want stuff. yeah yeah exactly the real drama though the the really fun stuff for us uh, started in 1995 when world championship wrestling which again is owned by ted turner and at the time was being managed by a former wrestling announcer named eric bischoff they launched a weekly television program called monday nitro which aired at the same time and on the same night as wwf's flagship show monday night raw uh, so thus began the Monday Night Wars. And it didn't help that Nitro would end up being headlined by some of Vince McMahon's uh, biggest former stars, like uh, Hulk Hogan, famously jump-shipped, uh, Macho Man Randy Savage. Lex Luger showed up on the like very first episode of Nitro, remember that? And that was like, he was literally at a WWF house show like the night before, right. and nobody knew he was going to come to WCW, including most people in WCW. Right. Uh, they like, drove him to the not the arena it was like a mall all right on the first yeah they were doing it in a mall they like drove him there like half an hour before it was to air and didn't let anyone see him they brought him in like with a towel over his head so it was like a huge surprise when he showed up this was like a big like it's a big deal in wrestling but it's like the first time Vince McMahon ever had like an actual rival that in his pockets could compete yeah they could afford to pay his wrestlers what he could pay them exactly so he would just like steal talent back just like it, it, you know people might have given him shit at the time but it was kind of the same thing Vince was doing and then yeah. Turner started doing it to him it was just two billionaires sh- like having a dick, dick measuring yes, exactly <laughs> except their dicks are Macho Man and Hulk Hogan <laughs> which are very small because of the steroids oh, <laughs> oh <no. laughs> so the the true declaration of war between the two companies came I think with the NWO the new world order that was sort of the big thing that tipped things in Turner's favor I would say and I'm no wrestling historian I'm I'm basing a lot of this on my own I was watching all this shit in the 90s when this was happening and the NWO always seemed like that was the thing that got people to tune into WCW as opposed to the WWF I think that's pretty accepted that that was one of the big shots fired yeah. it's like he had stolen Scott Hall and Kevin Nash who yeah so they were Diesel and Razor Ramon in the WWF and uh, yeah, they they jumped ship, and they were like, th- that was a bigger deal almost than Hogan and like Randy Savage because these were two young guys who were big and in their prime, right? As opposed to Hogan, who wasn't a has been at the time, but he was past his prime. Yeah, exactly. And and they brought them in under this guise of like, not that they just hired two new talents, but they did this like tricky thing of like, how much can we get away with by pretending that these are WWF guys still? Exactly. Like they are invading. They came in like they were sent there by Vince McMahon. The story wise, they were sent there by Vince McMahon to start a war with WCW. Yeah. And so meanwhile, WWF's kind of ignoring it and WCW is like playing into it. People are intrigued. I can't believe it. I can't believe what I'm saying. You people, What's with him? you know who I am. But you don't know why I'm here. Are we going to get security here? Where is Billionaire Ted? Where is the Nacho Man? That punk can't even get in the building. Me? I go wherever I want, whenever I want. And where, oh where, 
is Scheme Gene. Because I got a scoop for you. When that Ken doll lookalike, when that weatherman wannabe comes out here later tonight, I got a challenge for him, for billionaire Ted, for the Nacho Man, and for anybody else in uh, WCW. <laughs> hey, you want to go to war? You want a war? You're going to get one. I like that he calls him the Nacho Man. <laughs> he leans into Nacho Man. Though. I feel like that would be my name as a wrestler because I look like someone, like I eat nachos. It would be like Taco Man. You, mm. you like tacos better. Yeah. I mean, I do like some nachos. Nachos though. are good. Nachos are good. So you hear it there. I mean, he's basically pretending like he's not supposed to be there. Yeah, he just walk, And you can't see, obviously this is audio, but you can find that clip online. But he like walks out of the crowd. The Scott uh, Hall, by Scott the way. Scott Hall, yes, uh, a.k.a. Ra- formerly known as Razor Ramon. And then I think Kevin Nash would appear a week or so later yeah. on the show. And they became the, um, what, were they, what were they called, the Outsiders? The Outsiders. But they were the original members of the NWO, the New World Order, which, like, over the years would just, like, grow and grow and became the reason people watch WCW. And it's sort of genius when you think about it, because not only had WCW swiped a couple of McMahon's top young uh, stars, but it's taking full ownership of that meta story, uh, which uh, like Gary said at the time, WWF was ignoring and it drove tons and tons of viewers to watch WCW on Monday nights. Uh, So now it was, there was a real ratings war between the two companies, but it had become, part of it, the on-screen narrative. I mean, WWF would embrace it later on. Like, they famously sent Degeneration X over to to the, the arena where WCW was yeah, like appearing. Yeah, uh, army truck. And, like, and a tank? <laughs> Were they in a tank? It was something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Maybe it was. Um, they were definitely dressed in army fatigues. And I think it was Rick Rude that appeared on both Nitro and Raw, like, in the same night at one yeah. point. Like, he jumped ship, like, midnight. Right. That's crazy. Like, if you think about this, like, in even if you're not a wrestling fan, just imagine, like, one of your top stars appearing on your show, leaving the arena, and then appearing on your competitor's show later on the same night. Yeah, it's almost like if, like, Tom Brady, like, left the Patriots and went to the Bucks, but he was, like, on the same night. Like, yeah. he played for both Like, teams. after <laughs> halftime, he showed up on the other. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, the re- a lot of the details for this are, are probably better left to some of those other documentaries, uh, books, and things that have been written about this, or a, even a, a wrestling history podcast that's going to be able to dive into it more, because you could literally do an entire podcast that's n- about nothing, like every episode is just about the Monday Night Wars. It, it was that big of a deal. Uh, but the gist of it, here's how things went down. Like, the WCW did manage to edge out the WWE fa- the WWF in ratings, and they did so for 83 consecutive weeks. Uh, and it, essentially, they kind of redefined the wrestling model in the process. They made it more meta. They made it more self-aware, I guess you could say. They kind of focused more on the drama of it than on the wrestling, which is good or bad, depending on what you want out of your your wrestling television. But a lot of their top wrestlers were spending a lot more time cutting promos and coming up with catchphrases than they were, like, 
actually wrestling. Right, right. Which over the years has become annoying and uh, uh, one of the main reasons I kind of stopped <laughs> watching wrestling. Well, it's just that nobody's, until maybe recently, I'd argue the NWA, but like nobody's come up with like some different format to right. use than just the same thing that's been going on since the 90s. Exactly. And what the NWA doing is taking it back to before all Before this. that, yeah. yeah. And I mean, there were other like, I mean, there's a lot of really fun stuff you could talk about, about the back and forth between the two. One of my favorites is how um, Tony Schiavone uh, spoiled that Mick Foley was going to win the WWF championship. Right, because like, Raw was taped. Tony Schiavone yeah. being a um, a an announcer in WCW. So Raw had been taped, and it wasn't live at the time. And he spoiled that Mankind, It was he was as Mankind at the time, yeah. Mick Foley, was going to win the WWF Championship thinking, oh, people aren't going to tune in to Raw because they now they know what's going to happen. And the exact opposite changed and people changed the channel over to, <laughs> over to the WWF. Right. Kind of during this time when WCW was dominant in the ratings, the WWF was, they were groping around wildly, just trying to stay relevant in this era when pro wrestling was recreating itself. So they essentially recreated themselves, uh, eventually finding success uh, with what came to be known as the Attitude Era, which is when they sort of focused on a lot of sex and violence and vulgarity. And, and a lot of that was specifically tied to the ascension and popularity of Stone Cold Steve Austin. Talk about your Psalms. Talk about John 316. Austin 316 says I just whipped your ass. It's still one of the best moments in wrestling of all time. (laughs) (laughs) The birth of Austin 316. Yeah, that guy was great. It still is. Yeah, he's a lot of fun. Has a very successful podcast on his own right. More successful than ours. Uh, Arguable. (laughs) (laughs) That man made Vince McMahon a billionaire. Yeah. Is what, what Stone Cold is responsible for. So, And along with... He had Stone Cold Steve Austin, and along with Shawn Michaels and Triple H, which became known as Degeneration X, uh, The Rock, uh, The Undertaker, Mick Foley, and, and and other popular characters at the time, McMahon's company eventually wrestled back control of Monday nights. Yeah, they had all of that, and then this guy, you're, you're going to mention him again, but Vince Russo was kind of riding for him, and he was a big Howard Stern fan and had this crash TV mentality, so yeah. they were doing more adult-oriented stuff and sure. getting outlandish with their uh, work. Oh, yeah. And it is, if you go back and watch some of this stuff now, which I, th- I guess you can watch most of it on, like, the WWE Network, but I've, I went back and watched some of it, uh, I mean, a while back when I still had the WWE Network, but I was sort of shocked by what they were getting away with on cable television. Yeah, it's pretty insane. Yeah. So WWF is all of a sudden back on top, and that sends WCW reeling, and they start kind of flailing, not quite knowing what to do. Uh, they're doing dumb shit like offshoots of the NW, uh, the NWO. They had the black and red versus the black and white, you know, the wolf pack versus the OG NWO. They had the, like, even, like, the Latino world order and yeah. the fucking blue world order. Do you remember that with the blue yeah. beanie? Yeah, and I'm trying like, to remember if that was ECW or something, too, which was, like, a minor third, but, yeah. Because there, it, yeah, there were all these different variations. It was, like, the blue meanie and... um. Uh, what's his name? Stevie Richards. Yeah, Stevie and, Richards. Yeah, like former ECW guys. It was really goofy. And anyway, they kind of got things kind of got out of control. 
<laughs> and got kind of really, really dumb really fast. The NWA went from like having these like main members that were really intense to like literally where almost everyone on the roster was in some version of the NWA. <laughs> right. To the point where there was even like a there were like feuds between them and they had a, a whole NWO like pay per view. Remember that? So anyway, the the WCW is looking for anything they can do to get back on top. So what they did was what any reasonable corporate entity would do, and they produced a movie starring David Arquette as a marketing weapon against McMahon. It, it's sad that it came to that, but sometimes you got to pull out the nukes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so they were going to decimate the WWE with David with Arquette, David Arquette, and Scott Kahn. Now, and, and as I mentioned before, there is not a lot of information. Regarding the making of the movie, there is a DVD commentary, but it doesn't give you a ton of information. It's just, it sounds like they had fun making it. (laughs) But in a fairly recent interview with Fox News, of all people, this is from uh, 2018, uh, David Arquette did give a little information about how he got involved with the film. So I'm going to read his quote here. He says, I don't really know exactly how I got involved in Ready to Rumble. (laughs) Good. (laughs) Well, very informative, David. Thank you. He says, it was just a script that came by. I'd been coming off screen, so when you have a hit movie, it's easy to sort of pick and choose. I w- so he's picking and choosing out of all these scripts, and this is the one he picks, by the way. Of course. Uh, says, I was already a wrestling fan, so just the idea of working with Sting and Goldberg and Diamond Dallas Page was amazing. And I just love the story, and I love the director, Brian Robbins. He's an amazing director, and Scott Kahn, Oliver Platt were involved. So it was a great cast, great script, great director, easy decision. And I got to tour around, fly in a plane with Hulk Hogan and hear a bunch of stories and have a few drinks with Ric Flair, which was amazing. I mean, I get it. It was you know, it, as a wrestling fan, like he's a he's a huge David Arquette's a huge wrestling fan. And get it, the idea of being to just getting to hang out with some of your heroes for weeks and uh, or months on end is appealing. We don't we don't have like as much, you know, like you said, uh, behind the scenes stuff. And there's it really just sounds like this is a project that Almost like David Arquette was kind of like, hell yeah, there's a wrestling movie out here. Yeah. And uh, I, you know, I looked up like everybody else involved, but it's, it's really kind of, uh, it's kind of slim as far as, you know, the the guy who wrote the script, Stephen Brill was like, he wrote the Mighty Ducks. Yeah. He did a lot of. Stuff that people would know. Yeah, he's he's done a lot, and he but he, I've he never worked found- on like with like Mark Marin. He's a big part of like Adam Sandler's crew, mm-hmm. and like Mark Marin was like worked with him on comedy scripts. And yeah, stuff. I think he helped with Adam Sandler, or maybe the director did with like Adam Sandler's recent Netflix special he, and stuff like that. Yeah, so so Stephen Brill the is the writer, and he so he started his screenwriting career in 1992 with the Mighty Ducks. Uh, then he wrote D2, the Mighty Ducks. In 1994, and then he actually started directing too. He directed Heavyweights in 1995, which is a movie yeah. that uh, people of our generation seem to really have a fondness for. Um, and he also wrote that one as well. Then he wrote D3, so he wrote the entire Mighty Ducks trilogy, and uh, he wrote and directed Little Nicky, which is nice. uh, for those who don't know, is the Adam Sandler movie where he plays the son of Satan. Uh, who is played by Harvey Keitel. 
It's not good. It happens to be my wife's favorite Adam Sandler movie, <laughs> but it is not good. Uh, he also directed, although did not write, uh, Mr. Deeds in 2002. So he's he's done some work with Adam Sandler. He, uh, I was going to say, I think he acted in like a lot of his movies. Yeah, like bit roles. Yeah. Yeah, bit parts. He uh, he directed Drill Bit Taylor, which was that Judd Apatow movie about, with, about like a, I think it was a hitman or something played by Owen Wilson. Oh, yeah. I don't know. I never saw it. Movie 43, which is awful. Um, <laughs> it's real bad. <laughs> and then two other, I was looking up his IMDb, and there's two other Adam Sandler movies that I don't even know anything about. There's one called The Do-Over and one called Sandy Wexler that he directed. Um, I don't, I can't off the top of my head think of what. Now, I'm not judging movies. any, I'm not judging any of these movies or his career. I'm just giving the facts on what he has been involved with aside from Ready to Run. I'm honestly racking my brain right now, though. Like, I'm just like, what are those movies? I don't know. <laughs> I, don't know. I, I keep picturing 50 First Dates, but I know that's not the do-over. No, it no. Sounds similar. It looked like, like, I looked up the, the poster, and it, it looks like an action comedy, because it's like Adam Sandler, Sandler with a gun. <laughs> so I have no idea. Oh. Uh, so, and, and the director, Brian Robbins, he started out his career as an actor, actually. Uh, before he was a director, he was pro- best well known for he had a role uh, on an 80s sitcom called Head of the Class. Yeah. And then he also hosted a TV game show version of Pictionary in 1989. <laughs> then in the 90s, he started producing for Nickelodeon. He was the producer for all that and all of the all that spinoffs like Keenan and Kel. Like he was that guy. And that actually led to his feature film directing debut, which was Good Burger, which the, all of that spinoff movie. So that was his nice. first movie. And actually, I mean, I like Good Burger. It's mostly for nostalgic purposes because, again, not a good movie, but uh, entertaining in its own way. And super popular with people of our generation. Yeah, yeah. And Good Burger was a modest hit for him. And he followed that up uh, with Varsity Blues. Oh. He directed Varsity Blues for MTV Films in 1999. Which also featuring Scott Kahn. Also featuring Scott Kahn. And MTV Films is owned by the same company as Nickelodeon, so I'm sure that's how he got in on that. But then, yeah, after... So if you look at his IMDb after Ready to Run, I believe Scott Kahn's character in that movie is named, like, Tweeter or something. Tweeter? Yeah, I'm pretty sure his name's Tweeter. Seen Ready to, uh, I've not seen Varsity Blues since, like, 1999, but I would like to revisit it because I just read that book, Best Movie Year Ever, yeah. Um, all about the movies that came out in 99, and it made me want to rewatch it. There was something about, I mean, at least as a high schooler, Varsity Blues was huge. Like, it was Allie Larder and, and the um, the whipped cream bikini is what it was as a high schooler. That I think, too, like I, I grew up in a very high school, you know, Friday Night Lights, like yeah. football town. Sure. And so like it was a big deal watching the high school football team or right. whatever. So if you look at Robbins's, and, and again, I'm not judging him as a directing talent. I'm just going to state some facts. But he's, about but he's his kind career. of a journeyman director. So. Kind of, but he tends to stick in sort of. Uh, Varsity Blues is the, the, I guess, the outlier for me, although. It's not the only sports movie he was involved with because after Ready to Rumble, well, I guess Ready to Rumble is a sports movie. Yeah, <laughs> technically. technically. But he did Hardball in oh, 2001. Keanu. The Keanu movie, which is sort of schmaltzy and cheesy. It's not like offensively bad, but it's at like 38% on Rotten Tomatoes. 
he also did, he then followed that up with a movie that's like a heist movie, teen comedy that stars Chris Evans and Erica Christensen called The Perfect Score. That came out in 2004. It made $20 million on a $40 million budget, and it is at 17% <laughs> on Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, For those he, of you who don't know, that means it's hot. He did the 2006 remake of The Shaggy Dog, starring Tim Allen as a shaggy <laughs> dog. Uh, 27% on Rotten Tomatoes. Nice. Uh, he directed Norbit in 2007, that, that comedy that starred like Eddie Murphy, Eddie Murphy, and Eddie Murphy. Remember that? Yeah, when he was just um, rolling off that nutty professor type. 9% on Rotten Tomatoes. Woof. Although it made a good bit of money. That one actually did pretty well financially, which led to him collabing with Eddie Murphy again in 2008 with Meet Dave, which I think is like where people live inside of Eddie Murphy or something, right? Yeah, I was going to say like it's like somebody's inside his head or something like that. Yeah, 19% on Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah, makes sense. Made $11 million in the U.S. on a $60 million budget. Yeah. And his most recent credit is a... 2012 movie called A Thousand Words, which was apparently filmed in 2008 and sat on the shelf for four years, also stars Eddie Murphy. I have never heard of this movie. 0% on Rotten Tomatoes. Wow. <laughs> Zero. So, again, Ladies and gentlemen, you're ready to rumble creative team. <laughs> <laughs> we're just, just putting some context into who we're talking about today, the people who made this film. And again, I'm not... I'm sure he's a very nice guy. Uh, and, and Robbins has actually gone on to be pretty successful as a producer because he still works for Nickelodeon now, produces a lot of their like uh, movies, like that live-action Dora movie that came out last year and you know uh, things like that that are anything that you see Nickelodeon in front of. Like He's still working with them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, hey, lit, I, I ain't directing nothing. I mean, and some people are better as producers. I mean, that's just a, a fact. Some people just don't have the creative vision to be a director necessarily. Uh, so anyway, we don't have a lot of like fun tidbits about the making of Ready to Rumble. Uh, not a lot of fun uh, stories behind the scenes, but there are a few. We have a few uh, here and there that we've been able to find. You know what, Justin? We do have some really funny stories that I can't wait to talk about from Ready to Rumble. But before we get there, I did want to take a second because if you don't know already, our show has a brand new sponsor, and that's Manscaped.com. You might be asking yourself, how do you know when you're ready to rumble? Well, I'll tell you what, if you're quarantined right now with your wife or your girlfriend or your boyfriend, or whatever your thing is, as soon as you take off your pants, they're going to know right away if you're ready to rumble. And there's a chance that if you haven't been taking care of yourself, you're not. And hey, even if you're quarantined right now, you can't actually physically get out there and socialize. The only way you're going to get anything done is proving you're ready to rumble over like Tinder, sending the old penis pics. Hmm? Well, you can't be just sending them looking all shaggy and unkempt. That's where Manscaped.com comes in. Manscaped has completely redesigned the electric trimmer. The engineering team there took 18 months and designed the Lawnmower 3.0, which is a fantastic device for exactly this sort of thing your issues that you need to take care of. Listen, I know you can't go to the barber, so your hair's going to grow out, your beard's going to grow out. Don't let it get out of control downstairs. You'll regret it, I promise. So check out manscaped.com. The Lawnmower 3.0 has a ceramic blade and advanced skin safe technology that's going to make all the nicks and cuts and everything that could happen a thing of the past, just like hopefully coronavirus will be a thing of the past. And when it is, you want to be ready. Listen, when I tell you this thing is premium, I'm not joking. It's got a 90-minute battery straight through, so you can do whatever you want for as long as you want down there. Just sculpt it just right like your Edward Scissorhands or something down there. 
One of the coolest things that it has is this LED light that just shines right there and illuminates the grooming area for a closer, more precise trim each and every time. And it's quiet. You want to sneak into the bathroom or something while your wife's asleep and you don't want her to know you're taking care of business down there. It's 7,000 RPM motor is the quietest thing. It's unbelievable how quiet it is. I'm not kidding. And let's not forget... It has a charging stand as well, so it's safely kept up and charged and ready to use whenever you need to get ready. But don't just take my word for it, okay? I mean, I'm just telling you what I know from experience, what Justin probably knows from experience. Justin definitely knows from experience because he's used it. He won't talk about it. We'll get him to eventually next time. If you're listening to me speak right now, just don't even take my word for it. Just go to manscaped.com and check this thing out because you want to trim that junk of yours. It is not a joke. You got to take care of these things. And with our special code PFS20, that's like Psychotronic Film Society, PFS20, you can take 20% off of anything in the store and you get free shipping. So please go check them out. You're helping out the show. You're helping out yourself. You want all of the naughty images you're sending back and forth during quarantine to look their best. So please go check it out for your sake and ours. Manscaped.com. Use the code PFS20. Your balls are going to thank you. They actually brought in Steven Spielberg to rewrite the script. (laughs) That is incorrect. (laughs) Fake news. Okay. One of my favorite is that the stuntmen for the wrestling scenes for the lead actors, the non-wrestlers. Uh, the stuntmen were actually wrestlers, were, were wrestlers that we know. Like, you, you've got Sugar Shane Helms uh, from, what, Three Count? Three count? At, at the time, yeah, yeah he would have been. Because he was later hur- the Hurricane. Yeah. But at the time, he would have been Sugar Shane Helms. Right. Uh, he was David Arquette's wrestling uh, double. So any scenes where you see David Arquette wrestling, it's actually Sugar Shane Helms. And then Chris Canyon was the not only the film's fight choreographer, but he was the... The wrestling double for Oliver Platt. Yeah. and I mean, and if you're trying to come up with a... If you're trying to think of who should be your stunt double, who's better than Canyon? Oh, that's what he did see. That's a catchphrase from wrestling yeah. for those who only Only old school wrestlers will understand that. But, but I read... I'm glad, I'm glad you appreciate it. I here. saw that your note about that before I watched the movie. And so you I can was see looking him. for it. And you could totally you tell can it's, it's Canyon. He had to wear like a... What he called a fat suit... <laughs> To play yeah. Oliver Platt, which Oliver Platt did not think was funny, <laughs> but <laughs> Oliver Platt is uh, considerably more portly than Chris Canyon, who was in a pretty incredible shape. I'm pretty impressed by like how Oliver Platt doesn't look completely out of place. Like he looks. Does he not? Well, okay, because <laughs> he does to me. He does look out of place, but I mean, I'm thinking size wise. I picture, tall. I picture Oliver Platt being like this, like five foot ten dude. Yeah, he's a pretty tall guy. Like he looks short, or chubby at least guy. they make him look like he's a pretty tall guy in the That's movie. That's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, he looks like size wise, like he's in that range of like being a professional. But wrestler. he does not. And there is not a universe in which Oliver Platt is the biggest wrestler in the world. No. <laughs> you know, no. nor that gimmick. Well, nor that. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say like Jerry the King Lawler. What is I guess. that gimmick though? He is a. He is a king, yeah, so basically Jerry the King Lawler, and yet he comes out to King of Rock by Run DMC and raps it with the audience? Well, correction. He comes out to another entrance music. Then before then the match starts, he gets to do King, king of, of Rock. rock. <laughs> Which, uh, by the way, I also saw that Chris Canyon, one of his... No, no, I'm sorry. Shane Helms, one of his other duties on the film, was to teach all the extras in that arena, uh, who, most of whom were Hispanic and spoke Spanish as a first language, had to teach them the lyrics to King of Rock 
before they filmed that so that they could sing along with it. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> Speaking of the arena, they're very small. Yeah. It looks like they're filming this in like the ECW bingo hall. Like it does. It, 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 it feels it's very like small. the MGM Grand and stuff, but it's like yeah, they, they are very tiny arenas. Like wrestling, I mean, for what it's worth, I mean, when you get bigger companies like WWE, they're in like stadiums. And a lot WCW of time. at the time was in stadiums, like yeah. the, the seated tens of thousands of people. Yeah. But in this, it's like, it's very, very small. Right. So, anyway, I think getting wrestlers to be your stunt guys is a smart idea for a movie that's all about wrestling, since these guys know how to take bumps, they know how to make it look good. Uh, but there were still some injuries on the set. Uh, in the film's opening scenes, one of the opening scenes, uh, Rey Mysterio, who had been unmasked at the time, another one of WCW's uh, poor booking decisions, if <laughs> right. I, I say, uh, he's wrestling in a tag match, and he's, God, who is he? He's, he's teaming with Billy Kidman, and they're fighting Juventu Guerrero, who had also been unmasked, and another luchador who I... Did not recognize. Was it a luchador? It, was it Prince Iokea? Like, oh, it, it was Prince Iokea. Yeah, 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 you're right. You're right. And so that's the match at the beginning. And there's this actually really cool shot in the movie of of Rey Mysterio doing a, a move called a pop up Frankenstein,er and the way the angle they shoot it from, it's like it's super cool. And they wanted him to keep shooting that to keep getting it from like different angles. And he blew out his knee. And, and those of you who are wrestling fans know that Rey Mysterio has a notoriously shoddy knee. Yeah. Like, he has been out countless times over the years with having to have knee surgeries and things like that. And and he blew out his knee filming this movie. and was out from, like, November 99 through, like, the following May of 2000. Wow. Uh, but it is one of the cooler shots in the movie. It is a cool shot, but it should have just kept that one shot yeah just uh just do the one one. yeah i wonder if ray's like sitting there just like why don't you fucking come do this (laughs) yeah you do this (laughs) uh another injury occurred uh in another one of the movie's early scenes actually i think it's the very first scene in the movie where david arquette imagines himself in a match with macho man randy savage in the middle of a convenience store and macho man just looks roided out as hell in that (laughs) scene he he looks real solid (laughs) like good god uh, just veins popping out everywhere, and and the girl in the background is a girl named G- Gorgeous George, yeah, who would have been Macho Man's girlfriend at the time, yeah, on screen or off screen too. I don't remember. I'm not sure if it was off. Definitely screen. on screen though. Yeah, he ended up with a posse with like Medusa and her. Yeah, yeah. So uh, Jimmy King comes in to team with with uh, David Arquette. Jimmy King being Oliver Platt's character, and he pops. Macho Man on the face, and he actually punched him by mistake. And you can actually actually see that in the outtakes at the end of the movie. You see him like hit him and go, "Oh shit!" Like <laughs> I just I just punched the Macho Man Randy Savage. <laughs> I would be terrified. Yeah, because I'm like, "Oh, is he gonna be bad?" I'm sure Macho Man's been accidentally punched numerous times. I, I found like a little interview with David Arquette uh, from like uh, AV Club or something, and uh, he talks a little bit about that when that happened and and Oliver Platt freaking out, and he was like, "But Macho Man was kind of like." Oh, you know, that that, that just happens, brother. (laughs) That's the way the business is. (laughs) I'm sure he's had worse happen to him. Yeah. David Arquette says in that interview, too, like his his biggest regret from this movie, imagine uh, the possibilities, but his his biggest regret for this movie is that Helms takes the suplex for Macho Man in the convenience store, and he wishes he would have just let Macho Man suplex him. 
<laughs> That's his biggest regret. That's his biggest regret. No, you're going to get it. You messed with the macho man, Randy Savage. I'm going to get you. Yeah. Now, one of my other favorite little trivia bits is that uh, Eric Bischoff, who we mentioned earlier, was the manager. He was the executive producer and, I guess, eventually executive vice president of the WCW. Um, he was supposed to play a fictionalized version of himself in the film, which was a role that eventually became Titus Sinclair, uh, which is the character that's played by uh, Joe Joe Pantoliano, Joey Pants. Uh, I do have a little clip from a podcast interview with Eric Bischoff where he talks a little bit about this. My first meeting was with Lorenzo de Bonaventura. And then after that, I met with Brian, Brian Robbins and they got to work and put together a script. Uh, and while I was, you know, they, they wanted me to play myself in the movie, which is, you know, if you, they wanted a lot of, uh, of the talent in WCW to play roles within the movie. That was their idea, not my idea. I wasn't going to Warner Brothers and asking them to make a movie about wrestling and, by the way, put all my friends in, right. which is probably the way <laughs> it was reported. They literally came to us with an idea, and they wanted as many characters in the movie as they could cast that were actually a part of the WCW roster. So I, I was initially uh, going to play myself in that role. I think the role was probably uh, – the, the role the Joey – Pantaleonis played was probably an expanded role given, you know, the nature of his screen credits and so forth and his abilities. My role would probably have been reduced quite a bit, but that was the original plan. So one interesting thing that he talks about in that interview is that this was not, this was not something that was like conceived by the WCW. Time Warner, who actually owned Turner uh, at the time, there had been a big merger in the late 90s uh, where Time Warner basically acquired Turner Broadcasting. And that's a whole nother story that eventually, if you read into it, leads to the destruction of the WCW down the line, or at least contributes to it. Because Time Warner, the, the executives at Turner did not want to be associated with wrestling. I guess they, they, wrestling. Were, they thought it was embarrassing, even though it was bringing in a lot of viewers. But. At the time, they wanted to capitalize on it, and they approached the WCW about this. So they're like, we want to make a movie with you guys. So that's where where this originally comes from. But Bischoff, yeah, he was supposed to play that role, but he actually got fired from the WCW just a couple of months before production was set to begin. And and Bischoff does say that like the original version of the film that he discussed with the producers was going to be a lot more dramatic but with Bischoff gone, Warner basically decided to make it more of a comedy that sort of made fun of the wrestling business more than it celebrated it. Because it does really make fun of the wrestling business and, and the wrestling fans. It's it's like even more so than No Holds Barred, this movie might have more disdain for the very people that it should be marketed towards. Well, yeah, because in No Holds Barred, at least, like there was this... There, it, it was this idea that maybe there were like certain segments of wrestling that were like these lowbrow rednecks, right? And then you know, but otherwise, it was like a pretty popular, in a broad sense, kind of industry. And and this one, it's just like, nah, everybody's kind of stupid. Yeah, like the main <laughs> characters in this movie are total idiots, like right. total, totally stupid. And they're supposed to be like our heroes who are like the world's biggest wrestling fans. So yeah. it's sort of like. Seems to hate its own audience. Hey, Gordy. Yeah. Why does it look like you have your finger in your butt? Does it do? 
Bischoff, in the history of wrestling, Bischoff was replaced with a guy named Vince Russo, who Gary mentioned earlier, who the WCW poached from the WWF. Uh, then they tossed Russo only to bring back both him and Bischoff a couple of months later. So they were still just sort of, they had no idea what the hell they were doing. No. And there's a lot more, if you're interested in more information about the Monday Night Wars, there's a lot more information out there. The Wikipedia page for the Monday Night Wars is exhaustive. And you can find a lot of information with a lot of uh, sources credited. Uh, but one of my favorite little uh, instances, one of my favorite takeaways from that Wikipedia page is this short paragraph. In 2000, WC, this 2000 being the year that Ready to Rumble was released. In 2000, WCW lost $62 million due to guaranteed contracts of their older performers, plummeting advertising revenues, dropping house show attendance, controversial booking decisions like David Arquette and Russo winning the WCW title, and expensive stunts to boost the dismal ratings and pay-per-view buyouts. Now, we'll get to one of those in a minute. Okay. <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, but I would say that, it, you know, the expensive stunts to boost ratings that it's talking about, one of those has to be ready to rumble. Ready to rumble was one of those expensive stunts that didn't work out for him. Uh, the movie was released on April 7th, 2000. It opened at, it opened opening weekend at number six at the box office, only making $5.2 million in its opening weekend. Uh, the following weekend, it fell to number 10 only earning $2.6 million, a nearly 50% drop in revenue from week one to week two. By its third week, it had been pulled from almost 1,000 theaters and earned less than a million dollars. So it continued to fall week after week after week, eventually earning a total of $12.3 million on an estimated budget of about $24 million. So um, not a success. Doesn't sound like <laughs> anybody recouped anything off of that. I didn't write down any critical re reviews, but... Suffice to say, they were not good. Yeah, I mean, even Roger Ebert for, you know, as you can probably, I mean, I would imagine is not like, you know, a guy who was sitting around watching wrestling on a regular occasion. Roger Ebert even nailed exactly the point we mentioned earlier about, he said that it was better when it focused on the wrestling side of things and seemed to lose a lot when it focused on these outside elements that it seemed to have contempt for its entire audience anyway. Yeah. And so uh, it was, e it's even interesting to see like a guy like Roger Ebert, who, you know, probably has never seen wrestling before anyway. Right. Who even also gets that like, Oh, you guys are pissing on your audience right now. Yeah. It's at about 23% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is honestly higher than I would expect. Um, it's got a 52% uh, audience approval rating. Uh, a couple of quotes that I do have of A.O. Scott from the New York Times, who, believe it or not, was not a fan. Um, <laughs> his pull quote I read his on Rotten Tomatoes, because you know how Rotten Tomatoes will give like a quote from each review. His quote just says, ready to rumble is not much fun at all. <laughs> and then John Hartle of the Seattle Times, his pull quote on Rotten Tomatoes is, the entire movie is essentially an attempt to fill silence. <laughs> we, we need to give you folks two hours of you not having to talk and you can hear yeah. other people doing it. <laughs> uh, now, I'm not going to say that WCW lost the Monday Night Wars because of this movie, <laughs> but this was definitely, it definitely feels like an act of desperation 
on the part of WCW and definitely, I think, contributed to the fall of WCW, if only because of Arquette, uh, uh, an event that, that that Wikipedia article mentioned that we'll discuss in a minute where that involved David Arquette. That is seen as one of the main things that helped to just destroy this company. Because in, in less than a year, less than one year after the release of Ready to Rumble on March the 21st, 2001, Vince McMahon of the WWF bought WCW from Turner for only about $3 million, three or $4 million, depending on the source. But can you imagine $3 million? It's insane to think about that $3 million yeah. bought this entire company. And they had had other offers through the years. I think Jerry Jarrett had offered like $17 million earlier, and they had turned it down. But by this time, they had fallen so far. And now there are conspiracy theories about this that we can't get too far into that could say that there are some, some shady backroom dealings that led to this, you know. Uh, there are books written about that that, shit, if they were investigated, Vince McMahon would probably be in jail. <laughs> If That's they're like true, if they're true. Most stories about Vince McMahon. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If this had come out, he would be in jail. Yes. Uh, uh, but but no, like, uh, you, you know, we've talked about Eric Bischoff. Eric Bischoff, I mean, even tells a story about how he felt like he was pretty darn close to buying this thing. Yeah, he like, wanted to. He was trying to save it. Because he had his whole and, entertainment company. And, yeah. Yeah. But then it just got, like, the rug got pulled out from under him at the last minute for some reason. And yeah. And it's it's hard to not compare this movie to No Holds Barred, not only just because we talked about it last week, because there are comparisons to be made, uh, both in their attempt and failure at capturing, you know, wrestling for a mainstream audience. Of course, they're, both movies have sort of a disdain for their fans that we talked about earlier. And both movies seem to be very confused about if wrestling is real or not. And like in the context of the movie, like, is it real? Is it kayfabe? Like it's very murky depending on like which scene of the movie you're watching sort of. Yeah, it is weird. Uh, like this would, it seems like it feels to try to make an attempt that like, you know, they're working with each other, like Jimmy King and D Dallas page. Uh, yeah. but then all of a sudden it becomes real. Right. But yeah, it's it's weird. Like some of the fight scenes still seem kind of because you you see Titus Sinclair tell Diamond Dallas Page that he's going to win, which is something that happens backstage in wrestling. Like right. they'll be like, "Hey, you're going to win the title tonight. So and so is going to win the title tonight." But then the way that the match plays out, it's like it's a real fight, and Diamond Dallas Page is straight up just punching Jimmy King in the face. Like, and, and it's a very illegal wrestling match by wrestling rules. <laughs> right. Uh, there's a lot of closed fists. Yeah. Um, and not not to mention the scene later on in the movie where Jimmy King rushes out of the porta potty and attacks Diamond Dallas Page and then a ref just shows up and pins him. Like, this is not a sanctioned match. Like, what? You guys are... That's a bum rush well, backstage. For what it's worth, he doesn't win the title. Officially. Well, that's because Titus Sinclair has <laughs> some sort of logic where he's like by the way no matter what you say about the rest of this movie joey pants is giving 110 percent in this and he is amazing i think when he gets on the mic like where he's doing his like eric bischoff thing and like talking to the crowd he's really great he is i i couldn't find anything about him in this movie about why and, he did it yeah it's a paycheck yeah and it's a paycheck <laughs> and you just get not... the impression that in hollywood joey pants is the guy you're like all right he's like you know what you get when you hire me I will invest myself fully. He's great. I will come in. I will do the job. And, <laughs> and he's great it. at it. Yeah, he's a great character actor, and he kills it. Like, he earns his paycheck in this movie. Right, exactly. 
going back to David Arquette, I mean, it's easy to see why he was involved. Sure. Like he was, uh, his father was the voice of Superfly Jimmy Snuka in the old, like, rock and wrestling cartoon. Really? Yeah. David Arquette's father? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, I, I saw that. I wonder uh, if his father was proud of him for making this movie. Yeah. I wonder if Maybe. Scott Collins... His, his father actually died, like, a year after this movie oh. came out. Not because Sc- of this movie, but... <laughs> he was just heartbroken. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if Scott Conn's dad was proud of him for making this movie. I don't imagine that he saw it <laughs> but i don't but i don't know can you imagine grumpy ass james Conn trying to watch this shit yeah i, I just <laughs> i uh I, I tried looking up scott Conn stuff i couldn't find anything. he does not he is not proud of this movie uh david arquette we, we might discuss this later i'm not sure if you have any information on it but david arquette was doing a documentary about his return to wrestling and scott Conn wouldn't do it he wouldn't be involved in it oh wow yeah that sucks. No, no, and not because they're still friends. He just is like, he's like, a, he's doing a lot of stage acting and taking himself very seriously. And he didn't want to like talk about this shitty movie. Speaking of shit uh, in this movie, that's another thing that it has in common with No Holds Barred. Oh, yeah. A lot of dookie references. A lot of dookie <laughs> What is what is with that? A lot of I guess the producers are like wrestling fans like dumb shit, so let's just make a bunch of dookie jokes. Like Scott Conn and David Arquette literally shovel shit for a living in this. Yeah, that's weird. You know, I hadn't put it together before now. Yeah, there's a dumb wrestling. A lot of dookie jokes, and like there's literally a scene where they're like sitting on the back of their dookie truck eating lunch and there's just like dookie dripping out of it <laughs> in, in between them uh, it, it grossed my wife out it grossed my wife out <laughs> and she stopped watching the movie about half an hour in oh, <laughs> she's like i'm gonna go clean the house i'd rather do that than watch this movie <laughs> i got out of this and uh well we'll get there uh no you know who did not have a good time was rose mcgowan and, no, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, felt, she, she wasn't happy to reunite with her scream co-star. I know, especially to try to be a lover. But what? First of all, that whole scene where he goes to visit her at the hotel room, where he punches her in the face, <laughs> right? I was like, "What the hell is this?" I mean, that's that's how this movie sees its main characters. They're like they're wrestling fans, and they're the dumbest people on the planet for whom punching a woman in the face is a form of foreplay. She shows her boobs, and he screams foreign objects and punches <laughs> her in the face. It's uh, real dumb. Kids, do not do that at home. It will not go over well. Does not work. But no, she, uh, so I found this quote from her in an interview. She said, I had a very big agent who basically did the mind meld on me. Do this movie about wrestling. I threw that script in the garbage three times because that's where it deserved to be. (laughs) It, It was ready to rumble. It was a lot of money. She didn't care though. And I mistook her for someone who was a strong woman when she was really just a mercenary. And there is a difference. And one who didn't, and she was one. She's who, talking about the character. No, uh, she. I think she's talking about her uh, her agent. agent. Okay. Uh, so I mistook her for someone who was a strong woman. What she really was was a mercenary, or maybe she is talking about the character. Oh, just keep going. Yeah. Sorry, I don't know. We'll I don't figure know. out the context. <laughs> and there's a difference, and one who didn't like me either. A lot of agents aren't supportive of their talent. Agent. She's talking about the agent. <laughs> a lot of agents aren't supportive of their talent in any way. Nobody understood how to represent me, which was why, other than film publicists, I currently have no representation other than my lawyer. I don't need it. She said, if you do this movie for Warner Brothers, they'll stick you in the next Clint Eastwood movie. 
okay, fine. I'll do the stupid movie. I'm trying to have an out-of-body experience the whole time. Like, how is this <laughs> happening to me? I can't believe I agreed to do this. And I did it. I brought it, because that's what I do. And it was silly and whatever, harmless, but not really. It was really harmful to me. And uh, she said that, worse yet, later she found out that Eastwood's people had no idea who she was. <laughs> <laughs> oh man I mean she doesn't have a whole lot to do in this movie her character is really weird that's the thing this movie has all these like storylines that it sort of introduces and then totally abandons at yeah. some point you know like I mean her character has like a there's like a twist where she's really working for Titus Sinclair but it doesn't go anywhere they just sort of abandon her like they literally get on a bus and drive away from her and she's also similar to No Holds Barred yeah like, yeah. Except she doesn't come back around. You yeah. Know, but. And even like the, the girls that work at the fast food joint, like the one girl comes around again in a very disturbing scene. <laughs> <laughs> but the other girl that like Scott Kahn's character had the hots for, you never see her again. So that was pointless other than showing us that, I guess, girls think well, she gross. shows up right before the disturbing scene that you're talking about. She She says like, you know, I saw you on TV the other night and blah, blah, blah. And oh, does she? Like, I forgot about that. Yeah. And he's kind of like, oh, yeah, okay. Well, I got to I gotta go do something or something. He blows her off. Wow. Uh, Oliver Platt, though, I did find a quote from oh, him. Oh, well, that's another, that's another abandoned scene, abandoned plot point. Why is he dressed like a woman in that one scene? You know, I never mentioned again for the entire movie. I felt like it was to hide that he was Jimmy King or whatever. Like he was just trying to hide out as a woman because when they're like, he has a beard. Yeah. And looks like Oliver Platt. He covers Platt. His, his face with his <laughs> hair, you know? But uh, I found an interview with him where people were just, like, naming characters that he's played over time. And so they named Jimmy King. And he says, believe it or not, I loved that movie. For us, the experience of making... It was the experience of making the movie, for better or worse. It's the first thing in your mind. How it actually turns out, believe it or not, don't get me wrong... I'm not an idiot. How the movie turns out is crucial going forward. That's something, though, that's very much out of your control. I think that movie, on its own level, works really well. Dude, the most scared I've ever been in public as a result of the work I do is when I stepped on a subway car at the 96th Street in Manhattan right after school had gotten out. And this must have been right after the movie was out on video. It was a loud subway car. There's all of these Manhattan school kids going nuts at 2.30 in the afternoon or whatever it was. And then I stepped into the car and I was minding my own business. And all of a sudden, the car becomes completely quiet. I turned around and everybody's looking at me. And then somebody yells, it's the king. Crowd him. <laughs> <laughs> and he said, I don't think they were really going to attack me, but I thought it was very, very fortunate that it was a really short way to the next stop. <laughs> the doors opened and I was able to step out and take an unplanned exit. Jeez. <laughs> oh, this movie. I, I don't I genuinely don't know who this movie is made for because it seems to not like its own fans, like wrestling fans. And anyone else it would not appeal to. Uh, and it's a it is it I think we could both probably agree it's a bad movie. It's a horrible movie. It's the kind of movie that deserves like Mystery Science Theater or How Did This Get Made treatment, I think, you know? Yeah. But I will say I stayed entertained the whole time, mostly in like a watching it in like a so bad it's good kind of way, like just entertained by all of the awful decisions that are being made on screen, you know, if that makes yeah. sense. I, I think that it looked like everybody, I mean, obviously, except for Rose McGowan, I guess, uh, everybody was kind of having a good time yeah. making it. And everybody was goofing off. And I, I tend to think that 
you know, whether it's like the abuse spouse situation or something, but like, I tend to think that the wrestling audiences, they're kind of cool with knowing they're outcasts. And so right. they're, they're not offended when you make fun of them I as guess much. Not, but, and so I don't know. I, I also thought the movie was mildly entertaining. I thought like, it's not good, but it's still, it's not boring. I, I, I just enjoyed watching it. And like, David Arquette is so over the top in it that like you're insane. Insane. Yeah, absolutely insane. Yeah. And, and in a way that's sort of annoying, but you can still, it's not so annoying to where it's like off putting. Yeah. And, uh, for what it's worth, Diamond Dallas Page said they did do this scene, or, let, or he said they either did it or it was pitched to him that they were thinking about doing it and never did, was that after the match at the end, they were going to go back into the locker room and DDP was, this is, you know, according to DDP, but supposedly he would be sitting in there and Jimmy King walks in and DDP stands up and gives him a hug. And it was like, that was awesome, brother. And, uh, yeah, no, I, I read about that too, where, uh, DDP is saying that like, and, and they would like tell David Arquette, like, welcome to the business. Or yeah. Something. Yeah. Exactly. That was an ending that DDP pitched. Oh, and okay. Warner brothers is like, nah. Yeah. <laughs> but okay. that ending even doesn't make any sense. Like, because it further confuses whether or not wrestling is real or not in this movie. Yeah. True. You know, so even more confusing than it is now. Yeah, that's a good point. So uh, another confusing thing in this movie is like, why did Titus Sinclair have it out for Jimmy King? Like he literally has no motivation. Like he, even when Jimmy King says why, he's like, I'm just, done with I'm you. done with you. Like, why? What do you have against him? There's never anything that shows like what, why well, does he care? Well, that seems if anything you could take from that, it's not a good statement on the uh, wrestling business. Like what? Like they just like, you know, they put you out to pasture. What's they think you're done? And yeah, then, with I guess. a four post massacre. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't even a pay-per-view. Uh, the four-post massacre. I was sitting there thinking, I was like, somebody should take that. And then I was also like, nobody should should do that because it's like four people diving at the same time. Yeah, you're going to run it. You're going to hit You'll each other. You'll kill each other. Like, <laughs> it does not move. seem like a wise move to do. No. And, and uh, we haven't talked about Martin Landau. First of all, why is he in this movie? Because he's way too good to be in this. I I know. Like Jennifer was like, "Who is that?" And I was like, "It's Martin Landau." Yeah, I don't know why he's a he's legend. <laughs> why is he here? <laughs> what an odd uh, role for him to take. Um, he's slumming it, is what he's doing, and and I guess getting a paycheck. But but clearly, based off Stu Hart, I think you had in your notes Luthes, Luthes and Stu yeah. Hart. Yeah, they're, these these are guys like for those that don't know wrestling, they're considered like real legitimate shooters. Like these are guys that would grapple you and legitimately twist you up. And they're, and break they're you. Uh, trainers. Yeah. And they end up training wrestlers and they do. And even like, like Stu Hart has the famous heart dungeon. Yeah. I was explaining it, is, that to yeah Jennifer that. Yeah. Like Stu Hart's famous for having the dungeon that like wrestlers would go down there and be, you know, basically he's like, his basement and he had a wrestling ring set up and he would do, he would train them down there. This is sort of what Martin Landau's doing in this only it's in his like apartment. And it was the same story too. Like it would be like these young wrestlers coming in and they're 70 year old Stu Hart. And he's like looking like a feeble old man. You think he's going to teach you a few holds and he wants to stretch you. And yeah. He wants to sh like put you in holds and make you scream. And like, he's just like a torturous old man. Right. But that character like shows up and then it's just a convenient plot device, I guess. I don't know. It's a little it's a fun trade. vignette. Yeah. He gets to beat up Sid Vicious and Perry Saturn. Yeah, speaking of that, like, there are a lot of WCW wrestlers in this movie for a movie that only features, like, two wrestlers in, like, real roles. Like, Diamond Dallas Page is obviously the the villain of the movie, but and Bill Goldberg has a couple of uh, scenes where he's speaking and stuff. And also, always in his underwear. 
Bill, Bill Goldberg. Goldberg. That's yeah. real life for Bill Goldberg. <laughs> he just walks around like yeah. that. The Black Trucks. Who is, as the time of this recording, the current WWE World Heavyweight Champion? Is he? Yeah, he's like the Universal Heavyweight Goldberg? Champion. Goldberg. Yeah. <laughs> I have not been paying attention to WWF in a while. Oh WWE. yeah, he he, he beat uh, somebody. Oh, the Fiend. He beat the Fiend. And the fuck is the Fiend? Bray Wyatt, like his oh, character with the mask, the, with stuff. the playhouse. Yeah, at their uh, Blood Money Saudi Arabia watched, show. I have not watched WWE since last year at WrestleMania, yeah. so in a year. And he's supposed to be defending it at, at WrestleMania. But didn't his match get? Well, who's Goldberg supposed to fight? Well, this is after WrestleMania. Yeah, so we are. Out, that's, that's, this is sorry for you weird. guys. Yeah, but, <laughs> uh, Roman Reigns pulled out, and yeah, uh, yeah. but he's he's immunocompromised because the leukemia yeah, stuff. Yeah, so, sure. but he they sh- uh, they shouldn't be asking him to wrestle. They threw in Braun Strowman, I think. Just randomly? Yeah, they're just like, all right, we'll put in Braun Strowman. So Goldberg's going to win. I assume he won. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, this is going <laughs> to drop after. So this is going to be weird for our audience. But anyway, uh, speaking of, like, all of those WCW wrestlers, I love that you'll just randomly be watching a scene and it's like, oh, it's Disco Inferno in the background. <laughs> like, yeah. they're just, like, standing they're around. They're saying the- hammer. Yeah, they're just, <laughs> just standing around in the background just because they just needed a wrestler in that scene. So they're, And those guys were around. Uh, Perry thugs, Saturn yeah. and, and Sid Vicious, at least, are, like, the muscle yeah. but, or whatever. But a lo- often in scenes in this movie, there's just, like, a known wrestler just standing in the... Like, the Viva La Rasa guy. Oh, Conan. Conan. Yeah, yeah. And Hoovitude. Yeah. yeah. They just like, show, they are barely seen, but they're in the movie. It's it's just, it's really weird. Yeah. Really you know weird. who's another wrestler who's barely seen, but in the movie, in the uh, gym scene with Goldberg? John Cena. John Cena. Man, normally you can't see him at all. We should put that clip of it. It's John Cena. <laughs> you just roll and right, I, and right I like, past my joke. I, I, know, I did. <laughs> it took me a second as soon as I was like, oh, yeah. And normally you don't see him. So, That's <laughs> uh, good stuff. Oh, man. Classic. Uh, classic John Cena cool. jokes. It's worth mentioning because I don't think we really went down the rabbit hole. We don't have to go too far. But right after this movie was released, like... During that process, and Vince Russo, who I mentioned earlier, was famous for the Crash TV sort of thing on uh, WWE, took his uh, his his uh, sensibilities over to WCW yeah. and decided that what a really cool thing would be is if David Arquette won the WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Yeah, right. Because based so David Arquette was appearing on WCW television to promote this movie. Uh, and he appeared, I think, over the course of a few weeks, if I remember right. And then on April 26, 2000, a day that will go down in infamy, on an episode of WCW Thunder, which was their midweek show, uh, Thursday night, so Thursday Night Thunder, I believe I it was, so. if I remember right, uh, Arquette found himself in a match teaming up with Diamond Dallas Page, So, which is confusing because Diamond Dallas Page is the bad guy in this movie, but he was... I guess mostly known as a he was a babyface yeah. uh, in actual wrestling, most for most of his career I would say, uh, and at the time he was and his, so him and David Arquette had become friends. Uh, they were teaming up, and they were fighting against Jeff Jarrett and Eric Bischoff. It was a tag team match, but whoever pinned the other team won the championship belt, which belonged to DDP at the time. And I'm. There's a lot. Of, there's a lot of yada 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 here because <laughs> <laughs> this is the gist of how, what this all led to. And David Arquette ends up pinning Eric Bischoff and winning the WCW championship. And 
even David Arquette, like Diamond Dallas Page, if you hear him in interviews, he's like, they told him that uh, Vince Russo is going to put the belt on David Arquette tonight. And DDP's like, laughs. He's like, that's funny. (laughs) (laughs) They're like, no, really. And then DDP tells David Arquette, and David Arquette's like, no, that's a horrible (laughs) idea. Like, as a wrestling fan, he was like, that sullies this belt like you can't give me the championship but then he's like but then but like i get the chance to be in in a wrestling ring and hold the wcw championship as a as a champion and he went with it uh it it is widely seen by most wrestling fans as one of the worst booking decisions in the history of the sport right right people hated it wrestlers hated it like wrestlers who'd been busting their asses for years and had never had a chance at the title everyone hated it yeah, and uh, and then like Justin said, David Arquette didn't really seem to care for it either. But there he was; he was in the position. Uh, but I mean, to his credit, I mean, he's either crazy or just that like full of heart or something. The guy still loves wrestling to this day. He eventually dropped that title, obviously, but he dropped it to Jeff Jarrett at uh, Slambury. In a triple cage match, much like the one at the end of this movie. Oh, yes, the triple cage. Uh, commonly commonly seen on wrestling, not really. But Literally, it's been seen in this movie and in that Slamboree match, and I think that's it. Yeah, and uh, so anyway, David Arquette has gone from this movie, and as his, I don't know, I wouldn't say his acting career has gone away, but it's dwindled down quite a bit, and he took up like you know, working himself out and becoming an actual professional wrestler. Yeah. Going so far as to like, he almost bled out recently. In he like was a in the hospital. Yeah. yeah. He was in a hardcore match. Was that the one with Nick Gage? I think that's that was his big was. like match was against Nick Gage out in, uh, uh, I can't remember the, the name of the wrestling promotion, but it was in California. But yeah, he got like jacked and he's like 51 years old at the time. This was a year or so ago, I guess. Right. A year or two ago. Yeah. And I, it almost feels like he's like, because of the the way that his championship was received back in the early 2000s, that this was sort of him trying to make up for it. <laughs> yeah, he's making amends for like yeah. that whole scenario. So he's like trying to bust his ass and actually be and 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 you can read interviews with him where he's like proud to say he's like been accepted by yeah the boys in the locker room and like they accept him as one of them and. You know, he's out there. He was he was recently at the time of this recording last week, the NWA put out for free on YouTube. You can go watch their pop-up event from like Nashville where David Arquette fought Josephus in a hair versus hair match. Really? Yeah. You should try to get David Arquette on your show. I should. I should try to get David Arquette. That would be fun. That would be really fun. It'd be fun uh, to talk about this movie with him. Uh, yeah. So he's he's been trying to make up for it. And uh David nevertheless he persists. Yeah, and he he, he created um I don't know if he directed it. I'm not sure. I didn't write any information down on it. But a documentary about his whole kind of wrestling career. And it was actually supposed to debut at South by Southwest before it got canceled because of the coronavirus. Stupid corona. But hopefully it'll be made available like streaming and stuff soon. Yeah. We can all see that because I'd be interested to see it. But this virus be messing everything up. It sure does. Yeah. It sucks. (laughs) Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, ready to rubble. That's it. Let's get. I mean, I wonder how much Michael Buffer got paid. Do you think he has that like copyrighted? Because I I know like he was at like one point getting paid like a million dollars just to say it. Let's get ready to rumble. Yeah. And if this one he says uh, we are ready to rumble. Yeah. So I wonder if that had something to do with the copyright. Yeah. I bet it did. But he's still in it. 
He is. They're like, we're not going to pay you a million dollars because you're not saying the exact same thing, but we'll pay you 500 grand. And you get exposure. Sure. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for what it's worth, by the end of the movie, I just kind of felt like, oh, this feels like a little bit on the other end of those 90s teen sex rock comedy kind of things. Yeah. You know, although this is about wrestling, but it's like, like I wasn't offended by how bad it was or anything. Yeah, no, no. Like I was just kind of like, ah, there it is. Yeah, it's still entertaining. <laughs> I mean, I I didn't like. I wasn't mad at the end of the hour and a half that I had spent that time watching this movie. It's just it is objectively a bad movie, but still an entertainingly bad movie. Yeah. Speaking of entertainingly bad movies, let's talk about next week's uh, show, Gary. All right, what's do, next week? Do you remember? What no, was no, you haven't looked at the schedule. I did not. Sorry, I'm so I just looked, I time. looked this morning because I forgot what I'd put on. <laughs> <laughs> Next week, we're going back to a movie that Mr. Weldon discusses in one of his psychotronic books. Uh, it would be the, the one you've got in front of you there, the, the video guide, because this is from 1990. Okay. It is generally considered one of the worst movies ever made. Sweet. Troll 2. Oh, my God. Next week, we're talking about Troll 2. That's going to be a lot of fun. It's going to be a lot of fun. So you can find it streaming. If you have uh, the Cinemax or like Cinemax Go, it's actually on there right now as of this recording. Otherwise, you can rent it or buy it on on most of the like usual uh, places, Amazon, Apple, Fandango, Vudu, all those. It's available to rent or buy. So, guys, if pretty you easy have, to find. If you have not seen Troll Two, you got to just take take a little time out of your day and watch and I'll, Troll. I mean, 2. I will tell you, it's it's not good, but it is one of the most entertaining bad movies. Absolutely, you could call it the best worst movie. You could. I was going to say, I think, you know, not to spoil too much, but I think this leads into we're going to be discussing that very documentary yeah. about Troll 2. So it's a good double feature. It's so bad, it's good that it got its own documentary. Yeah. And uh, and it's it's pretty inoffensive. So if you got kids and stuff, I think, I, I mean, I feel like I saw this when I was relatively young. Yeah, and it's not particularly scary, I wouldn't say. Yeah, it's it's not. It's, it's real stupid. <laughs> it's really stupid. <laughs> this is going to be really fun to watch it again. I haven't seen it in a few and years. don't worry if you haven't seen Troll 1. No connection. No connection at all. Not, <laughs> there aren't even trolls in this movie. No, technically <laughs> that is accurate. So, so, you, <laughs> uh, so you won't be missing anything, but we'll talk about that next week. Uh, anything else to add, Gary? I don't think so. Y'all, wash your damn hands. Yeah, please wash your Stay hands. Stay home, wash your hands. Um, that's all I got. We're not going to do outbreak and contagion on this show because we're having fun here by god and you're gonna watch troll 2 we're instead try, we're trying to be a diversion from this <laughs> and maybe ne- i don't we don't know what's going to happen between now and when we record next week if there's a stay-at-home order maybe we'll be on recording from our different residences on skype or something but we'll figure it out we're gonna keep we're gonna do our best to treat keep churning out content even if something like that try, prevents us from being in the studio together so exactly yeah I am at This Is Gary Horn. Oh, yeah, I forgot that part. Yeah, see. This I, Is Gary Horn? At This Is Gary Horn on all the social media. And that's media. on Twitter, Instagram, and Letterboxd. You still been updating that Letterboxd? I've been updating that Letterboxd. I have been, too. I've been kind of bad about the, the reviews, but I've been logging stuff. I've been trying to type something in there. Yeah, I've just been unmotivated. It's been a stressful couple of weeks. Right. <laughs> for, every, for literally millions of people. Uh, I am Justin underscore Bishop on all those same platforms and you can find us at psychotronic pod everywhere uh like us on facebook and follow us on twitter and instagram and all that and uh tell all your friends and send the spotify links and things like that and we would love that give us a a subscribe and a five-star review if you're feeling generous we love you guys thank you so much for listening and i hope you're all doing well yeah until next week may the wings of liberty never lose a feather be excellent to each other
for a slice of fried gold. 